You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. to see you guys. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors and glad that you are here, uh, especially if you are new with us. I want to say welcome to you no matter why you're here. Uh, if you're interested in what's going on in our church or somebody bribed you with free lunch, all of that is a perfectly fine reason for you to be here and we're glad that you have chosen to join us. Uh, what we normally do when we get together on Sundays is we spend a lot of time opening the Bible and we receive it as God's word to us. We've got a lot of historical data and information as to why we land there, that the Bible is God's word, the biblical language is that it's inspired by God. But uh, that's where we land. And so we actually want to spend time when we meet together opening it up, trying to discern the, the original audience's interpretation and the meaning that's there. We want to pull out that meaning and then call each other to it. So we spend a lot of our time doing that. I know if you are new with us, then it could seem potentially weird that a group this size would spend so much time caring about what a really old book has to say about the world and about life. But at least we want you to know why we spend our time that way. And today we'll be in John chapter 15. So if you want to get a Bible, you can turn. John chapter 15. And while you are turning there, I wanted to highlight something for you. Last weekend, we did something that we call a kickoff weekend. It's basically a conference for our members. And we met on Thursday night, Friday night, and then for a good chunk of the day on Saturday. And we did some really intentional training. We did what we called cultural analysis around what we think are some of the more default views that Americans hold right now. We We termed it secularism, and you might have a better term for it, that's fine, but uh, for our purposes we called it secularism as the default way that Americans see the world right now, today. And we tried to really go in on some of these concepts and ideas and how we find ourselves, where we find ourselves culturally speaking. And all of the resources, all of that teaching is actually now available. And so if you want to get that, you can. That's on our website. I think there's a lot of good stuff there. Our kids actually went through some teaching that was similar. They just kind of made it in a kid-friendly package, which I don't even know how our Kid Town folks did that because I thought we had some complex, uh, high-level ideas. But somehow the kids were actually following along with us in Kid Town as we were talking here. And so that's all available uh, online. You can see the website there. We even left in the inappropriate jokes. So it's all there. We'll just leave that for you to look at um, and use as resources. And then I just, uh, just want to say thank you to those of you who give to our church and support the ministry that we're doing. We get to do things like what we did last weekend and get to provide those resources free to you because we have a lot of people who are really generous and who give so that we have the money that makes us uh, actually able to do the things that we do. So thank you to those of you who give and support the ministry that we're doing. This is one of the ways that we're able to to invest that money in resources that we think are helpful to people. So last Sunday, we started a new series for the fall and tried to make the case that the best way to make Columbia more like heaven is for people's lives to be changed by Jesus and tried to show you through the book of Matthew that this was Jesus's plan. He talks a lot about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, and he continues continues to emphasize individuals following him, being changed by him through teaching and practice. 
And we just said if that was Jesus' plan, then it's going to be our plan as well as a church. That's how we're going to approach our ministry. And what we're doing is we're looking at some of the practices that we have agreed to as a church. Our terminology is a member covenant. So folks who are in membership in our church, these are practices that we've all agreed to step into because we think they form at least a baseline foundation of what it looks like to follow Jesus in everyday normal life. It's not a comprehensive list. We just wanted to simplify it enough where it becomes useful. So that was what was on your sheet. You moved that out of the way to sit down. We printed that out for you and put that there. Those are what we call our practices that as a community we are agreeing to step into. And for the rest of our sermon series, we just wanted to provide some foundation and biblical backing as to why we think those practices are so critical in us becoming the kinds of people who make Columbia a little bit more like heaven every day. So today we will be looking at the very first practice that's listed on that sheet. Let me read it for us, and then that'll get us right into John chapter 15. So here's our practice that we're going to unpack today. Abiding in Jesus connects us to him as the source of life, as he produces fruit in us. Therefore, I commit to the consistent disciplines of meditating on God's word and prayer. I want to talk about that, and a lot of that language that you find there in that practice comes from John chapter 15. So hopefully you're there. John chapter 15, we'll do verses 1 through 11. And what I like to do, uh, what I'd like to do today is read through all of it so you get the feel for the whole thing, and then we'll work back through it Bible study style. So John chapter 15, let's look at verse 1. This is Jesus teaching to his disciples, his followers. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Real quick, when Jesus talks about fruit, he means two things. He means internal character change in our lives as we follow him. So the book of Galatians would call it the fruit of the Spirit. So this is love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, internal character change. He also means external fruit, meaning impact in the lives of other people. So spiritual impact and influence and help into the lives of other people, both things are what he means when he uses this term of fruit. Uh, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus covers a ton of ground here, all sorts of connections that he makes. He talks about joy and obedience and his word and prayer and fruitfulness and how we glorify God and all kinds of stuff. Just a loaded section of scripture. 
For our purposes this morning, I want to stick to the theme and the idea that he weaves throughout the whole thing, and that's Jesus' call for his people to abide. And that word abide just means to remain or to make your home in. Jesus uses it, he uses that word 10 times just in those 11 verses, over and over again. Make your home in Jesus, in his word, in his teachings, in his love. That's his repeated call throughout that section. And since what we're doing today is talking specifically about Scripture and prayer and how we abide in Christ through those means, I thought maybe what we would do is I'll show you, just as we go through the sermon, how I break down the Bible sometimes, especially this passage. There's a lot of connections and contingencies in this passage. He says lots of different, if you do this, then this is what will happen. If you don't do this, then this is what will happen. There's if-thens all over the place. And I just have a hard time getting my head around all that unless I break it down. And so I thought that what we would do is I'll, I'll show you how I studied this passage as we talk about you know, the sermon topic being studying the Bible. So this is going to be very meta in that sense. So uh, here's how I broke it down as I was just studying it. I made some columns to try to separate out all of these if-then statements that Jesus gives. And I got a first category where Jesus says, if you blank then you are abiding. This is where he clarifies what it means to abide. And then I made another category, another column, where Jesus says, if you abide, then blank. This is what will happen. This is the result. That's a promise. These are promises that Jesus gives. And then I made a third column where Jesus says, if you don't abide, then this is what's going to happen. And those are warnings or consequences where Jesus just lays out. This is what happens if you abide. This is what happens if you don't abide. And then the first column, this is what abiding looks like. And so what I want to do is work back through. We'll just go verse by verse. And where he gives us one of those if-then statements, we'll just throw it in one of those columns. And at the end, we'll be able to look at the whole thing and hopefully have our minds around it a little bit better. So let's go back through and start in verse 1. And let's just work through, and I'll make some points as we go, and we'll get some statements in those columns. Jesus says, I am, in verse 1, the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now that, that word clean, uh, that gets translated clean in English, is a pretty cool play on words that Jesus uses. It's the Greek word katharos. Uh, on one level, it means to physically clean something, to make it ready to be used. So think about when you maybe wipe off a, uh, a countertop so that it's ready for meal prep. You've cleaned it so that it's ready for its use. And in context, Jesus is using it like a, a branch on a vine where you cut off dead limbs so that it's pruned, it's cleaned so that it can bear fruit. But on a deeper level, it also has a sort of an ethical meaning where you make something blameless or innocent or unstained by sin. And so Jesus is saying, because of the word that he's spoken to them, the word of his kingdom breaking into life on the earth, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we're invited to place our faith and trust in him, to receive his righteousness credited to us, and participate in God's kingdom. And he's saying, because he is the true vine and we're connected to him, he's, cleaned, he's cleansed us that we're now ready to bear fruit. Verse 4 so abide in me. 
And that's the master category overall calling that he has for this whole section. Abide in me. Let me do something real quick just to make sure you don't wrongly spiritualize what Jesus is saying when he says he is the vine and we are the branches and that we are to abide in him. He says he's the true vine. In this metaphor, this idea of vine and branches, uh, there are lots of other vines. He's the true vine. There's lots of other vines. Anything that you connect yourself to for life and meaning and significance and purpose and joy is a vine in this metaphor that you are abiding in. So social media can be a vine to you. And every day before you go to bed, you find time to connect yourself, process through your day, get updates. And you might would say, no, 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 I'm just turning my brain off. I'm just checking out. And I would say, exactly. Instead of going to God to process your day, you're going to social media to work through your day. It can be a vine. Politics, for many people, are a vine. It's a source of meaning, something that you, that you look to and you attach your emotions to. For many people, romantic relationships are a vine. It's where we go for a sense of joy and a sense of self. Romantic relationships make life worth living. This is why some of you do not know who you are unless you are dating someone and why you drop your friends every time you start dating someone. It's a vine for you. We are all, in this sense, abiding in something. This is not a weird Jesus Christian category. He uses terms you might not use, but you are already currently abiding in whatever you think is the vine. You're doing it. And Jesus has just made the exclusive claim that he is the true vine. And that whatever you're looking to for joy, strength, purpose, whether that's friendships or entertainment or food or the party life or success or popularity or sports or whatever, whatever your vine is, you never have a hard time abiding in it. But Jesus just said he's the only true vine that actually feeds, actually gives real life, actually gives joy, and actually leads us into significance and meaningful fruit. So now let's finish verse 4, and we're going to start being able to fill in some of these categories that we have here. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So that's our first connection. He says, a branch can't produce fruit unless it's connected to the vine. So third column, if we don't abide in Christ, we will not bear fruit in our lives. That's Jesus's words. That's just going to go in our third column there. You can't bear fruit. If you don't abide, cannot bear fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So we got two of them there. First, he says, if we abide, we bear much fruit. So that goes in our second column for the promises that happen if we do abide. We bear fruit. Then he says, if we don't abide, we can do nothing. So that's our third column. If we don't abide, nothing. Can't bear fruit, can do nothing. Now he's saying, if we do abide, we'll bear fruit. Verse 6 if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. So if we don't abide in this metaphor, 
we are thrown away and burned like dead tree limbs. So verse 6 is going to have a phrase there in that third column. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, so that's our first contingency that goes in that first column there, where Jesus says to abide means that his word abides in us. Everybody with me so far? You see what we're doing? He just makes so many connections so quick. I read through it and it's like, oh my gosh, I, didn't, I don't know where all these things go. I just think like a Westerner. I just think A, B, C, D, and that's not how Jewish teachers thought. They would often just tell stories. They didn't write treaty paper, treatise papers. They didn't write position papers. They just told stories. And so sometimes to make these connections, I just got to break it down and just acknowledge I don't think the same way that a Jewish person 2,000 years ago thought. I need something that's just a little bit more linear, and this helps me get my head around everything that Jesus is saying. Continuing on in verse 7, he says, if you, abide in, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's another promise for if we abide. He says that we'll have power in our prayer. We can ask and it will be done. Now that gets clarified, this idea of powerful prayer and asking and it'll be done later. We didn't read it. It's in verse 16, same chapter, John chapter 15, just a little bit further down. So let me read this as a good reference. Jesus, just a couple of verses later, says, In verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So when he talks about prayer and getting what we're asking for in prayer, it's in context of praying for fruit, for significant spiritual impact in our lives and in other people's lives. So that's the context for our prayer and our prayer being answered. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and catch this now, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus says fruit in our lives, gradual character change over time, proves we are his disciples. doesn't cause us to be his disciples, it proves it. Life change over time is the evidence that we actually know Jesus and have faith and trust in Jesus. I need to just say this because we live in the South, and I know where many of you come from, and you have a background maybe of some church familiarity. Maybe your parents uh, were Christians. Probably your grandma was. I bet she was wonderful. And so you have some kind of experience in church environment, and a lot of times we minister to people who, because of their involvement with some church activities in their past, maybe even they were baptized at some point or were confirmed through a class, all of which has value, they think that they're Christian. You look at their life, there's no change. There's no life change over time. There's no continual submission of their life to God and God's word. Jesus just said, if that's the case, if your life isn't being changed over time, you're actually not a Christian. And I want to be clear, I didn't say that. I would never say that. Jesus said that. So if you're mad, you need to email him and not me. (laughs) But I want to make sure you understand what he, just, what he just said. Let's take him at his word. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Can I ask you a question? Is it easy for you to imagine that God the Father loves Jesus. Is that easy for you to just, yeah, I get it. 
eternally existent Father, Son, Spirit, perfect Trinitarian love. When God the Father looks at God the Son, of course, he's Jesus. He's awesome. Yeah. Like when God the Father looks at Jesus, he's like, my man. <laughs> he likes him. It's easy for God the Father to like Jesus. Is that, is that easy for you to get your imagination there? Did you catch that Jesus just said, the way that God the Father loves him is how he loves you if your faith and trust are in him. Is that easy for you to imagine? That when Jesus looks at you, he thinks, you are easy to like. It's easy for me to love you. Did you know that this is the reality? This is the foundation of the Christian faith, is that Jesus makes us righteous and acceptable before God so that the way that God loves Jesus is how God loves you. So Jesus says, abide in that kind of love. Why would you walk away from that kind of love? Why would you ignore or rebel against that kind of love? Stay there. It is easy in Christ for God to love you and like you. It's beautiful. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So that goes on our first column. Jesus says if we keep his commandments, then we will abide, then we are abiding. So that clarifies what abiding looks like. And then last verse, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So the last thing, Jesus says, if we abide, Jesus' joy in us makes our joy full. What is God actually after for you? Your joy. People talk about God like he's trying to ruin everything they're about. <laughs> like God's trying to take something from them. Like he wants misery and grumpiness so long as you're following his rules. It's after your joy. God's not trying to take from you. How is God glorified by making you miserable as you obey him? He's trying to bring you joy. Now, when I say joy, I don't mean happiness. Happiness is about in-the-moment circumstances. Joy is about contentment regardless of your circumstances. And the Bible just said that if we abide, joy is available to us. All right, so let's recap. We got our chart all the way filled in. The way that we abide, first column, is when Jesus' word abides in us and we keep his commandments. That's how we abide. That's what abiding looks like. If we will abide, middle column, he says we will, we will bear much fruit, we will have powerful prayer, and we will have full joy. Uh, theologically speaking, those are some mad good promises. That's a good list right there. If we do not abide in Christ, third column, no fruit, meaning nothing of eternal spiritual consequence. It's not that we can't do good acts and good deeds. That's not what he's saying. He's saying eternal fruit that lasts forever, spiritually significant. He says we can accomplish nothing of eternal consequence, and that much like a dead branch thrown off into the burn pile, all right, 
So now we got our heads around it. Let me just, for the rest of our time, let me try to unpack and give some application and even a little bit of, of repentance as we think about this. So let's first, let's clarify more that first column of what it means to abide. So let me give you a little bit there. When Jesus says, this is what it means to abide, he says it means his words abide in us and we keep his commandments. There's a good little reference um, that comes just a couple of chapters earlier in John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to some of the religious rulers. Here's what he says to them. He says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Now that idea is the opposite of his word abiding. When his word abides in us, it means it finds a place, a home. It's not foreign, it, it belongs. Everything gets moved around so that, so that his word feels at home. My friend just bought a new couch, and he brought the couch into his house and had to rearrange everything so that the couch had a space, had a home, had a place. That's the image of Jesus' word abiding in us. And he's talking to men who probably, if not definitely, had the first five books of the Bible memorized when he says this. He says, my word has no place in you. So he's not, he's not talking about an issue of simply learning or knowing or being informed. He's talking about an issue of that truth actually having a place in our hearts. So let me give you an example. Um, when Courtney and I were dating, uh, we had a really easy dating relationship. We thought we were going to get married, and it was just going to be the easiest, we're just going to be an example to everybody else, really, because we got along so well, saw eye to eye on almost everything, and we're thinking, we're going to walk down the aisle, and every day for the rest of our lives, the sparks will only fly bigger and brighter and higher. That's just, that's what we're stepping into. We got married. After about six months, we got out of town on a little trip. We were sitting at a nice restaurant, and we looked at each other, and we said, this is awful, this is not working. It's a night. We actually just told this story to an engaged couple. I think we freaked him out. <laughs> we were a little too honest. So we got to dial it down a little bit, I think. We said, this is horrible and it is not working. Something has got to change because we are miserable and we are making each other miserable. And you know, I knew for that whole time in my head that part of the Christian life was growing in humility. I knew that. I knew those verses. I was aware that I ought to care more about my own sin and weakness than I do other people's sin and weakness. But I had not applied that one bit. And I, a turning point for us was when an older guy actually sat me down and said, hey, listen, I think one of your biggest problems is you are so focused on her sin and her weakness, and you're not talking about your sin or your weakness at all. And I was just like, huh, Wow. That was, that was here. I knew that. But it had not actually made it down to my heart yet in a way that it began to be implemented in my life. It was a complete turning point in our marriage. It's possible to have a lot of stuff in your head, and that's good. But the goal is that it would abide or that it would make it to your heart so that it becomes practice, so that it becomes obedience to his commands. I, some of the people who know the most stuff about the Bible are the most arrogant people that I've ever met. That means they are not abiding. They have a lot of good, true information in their head, but it has not made its way to their heart so that it began to change how they interact with others and how they interact with God. 
His word and our obedience are linked together. So when we hear the words of God, we absorb them mind and heart so that in our body we act them out. We obey them. And so our aim as a church is and has been to try to make this normal here where we abide, where learning and practice are normalized. So we spend a lot of time in our gatherings being informed by God's word, and then we talk about how to apply it in our lives in life group. We want to learn and we want to obey and apply and help each other obey and apply. We sing songs. We're singing either straight from Scripture or songs based out of Scripture because we want to immerse ourselves in God's Word and God's truth in Kidtown. We're teaching kids the whole story of the Bible. We're trying to expose them to as many characters and stories as we can. And we want to help them see how the whole Bible is one overarching story that points to Jesus the whole way through. We've got a daily scripture reading plan with each sermon series that we're putting out that you can even sign up to get it emailed to you. I get it emailed to me. So every morning I get the scripture reading for that day that our whole church is doing. We're actually meeting together on Wednesday mornings to study that scripture together. We just did it this past week and it was great. We just sat around tables and studied the Bible, talked about it and prayed for each other. We've got a sermon series page that has all kinds of study help on studying alone and, and in a group. We're trying to resource you so that this just is normal. It's just what we do. It's not flashy. It's not shock and awe. We're Christians and we abide in the very words of Christ. So let me just really quick, I give you some of the nuts and bolts of how this looks in my life. So what I do as far as my practices and habits. I, right now, am doing the daily reading plan that uh, goes with our sermon series, and so I'm getting that email, and I'm studying that scripture, like many of you I know are. And I'm also reading First and Second Samuel right now. We're getting ready to do a character study on David. So I'm trying to read ahead and study and kind of get my head around some of the things that are happening in the life of David. I normally try to do this in the mornings. I just find that it works better for me when I start my day there. Once I get going with accomplishing stuff, it's just hard for me to shift out of that. Sometimes it's at home, sometimes it's at the office. It doesn't really matter that much. I use a few simple resources when I'm just doing my own time to meet with God. I use BibleGateway.com. It's very free, very online. I'll, I'll look at multiple versions of a passage to see how different translations language things, what words they use. It helps me see things that I might not would have seen. If there's a word or a phrase that I want to know more about, I can real quick search that word or that phrase in other places of Scripture to get some context and reference points and background on that word or that phrase. I also use blueletterbible.org. It's also quite free. It's a Greek lexicon. You can literally look up every, Greek and Hebrew, you can look up every single word in the original language to find out where it is in the rest of the Bible, what the background is, what the origin is of that word. It's a wonderful resource. And then I'm a really big fan of the ESV Study Bible for light commentary. They explain some things that I think are really, really helpful. That's the only one that'll cost you money. All the rest of these things are completely free and available. And what I'll try to do is take one thing for my day that I just learned or studied to pray through it and try to reflect on for the rest of the day. Then I'll spend some time praying. I'll pray about what I just read. I'll pray through whatever's going on in my life. I pray for my family, pray for our life group, I pray for you guys, pray for everything. I just try to process everything in my head and in my heart with God. It's not flashy, it's abiding. 
This is very, very regular. I'm trying to make space in my heart and mind for the word of God and the presence of God to be at home in my life. Okay, that's what it means to abide. That's the picture. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of these promises and warnings, and I'll talk about some ways that we might need to grow as well just for the sake of time. I'm going to lump it all together. Jesus says, if we will abide, there's joy, there's fruit, there's powerful prayer. If we don't abide, then we dry up. We do nothing of eternal consequence. We bear no fruit. You know, one of the biggest problems with fruit for us, I think, is that if right now I want some fruit, I just run to any number of grocery stores and basically have access to any fruit that grows anywhere on the planet, more or less. I want a fruit today, I get a fruit today. That is not how Jesus' original audience would have heard the concept of fruit. For them, when Jesus says you'll bear fruit, they would have thought, if I want a grape today, I should have planted a grapevine three years ago. If I want an apple today, I needed to plant an apple tree six to ten years ago. They understood it's a very long, slow, gradual process before fruit arrives. So I think my, my image and picture of this, always at least first in my mind, is a former member of our church named Steve. Many of you guys knew Steve. He passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he retired from a career in executive leadership at a big company, and then he just came on and uh, used his retirement to serve us and our church. And he just dripped with wisdom. This is what everyone said when they talked to him. He, it didn't matter what you asked him about. That was the craziest thing. It could be any category of life. You would ask him a question, and he would have this insight and this thoughtfulness and this wisdom. He was always saying stuff, and it's like, oh, I never even thought of that. Wow. It's everyone's observation was he just had so much accumulated wisdom and depth and insight and walked in a power that I've seen with few other people. And part of that is because he accumulated it like compound interest over time gradually in his life, taking steps daily of obedience and walking with God through prayer. And it just built up until towards the end of his life, he was one of the most dynamic, powerful, fruitful people I've ever been around. And some of you in 10 years could be a powerful, dynamic, fruitful, wise, insightful, helpful person. But you are not doing the things today that you need to do to get there in 10 years. That's a 10-year process, a 20-year process of gradual, slow, steady abiding so that all this wisdom and all this insight and all this change accumulates over time as you draw near to Jesus and you become familiar with his word and you obey him over time so that more and more you're able to pour out your life into others in such a way that their life begins to change. You can't decide to be that today. If you wanted to be like that today, you had to decide 10 years ago that's what you wanted to be like. The question is, if you want to be like that in 10 years from today, will you take the steps necessary to get there? 
So here's how I'm thinking about this. I need my kids to know that I'm smarter than their friends so that when they don't know what to do in life, they look at their friends and they think, why would I ask you? You're my age. My dad is smarter than you. I'm going to go to him. What you guys are saying sounds dumb. I think he knows. That's my goal. I need that to happen. I already need it. So this process for me had to start years ago. It's only going to get more and more important as my kids are able to make life decisions that could ruin their life in greater measure. I need them to look at their friends and think, you are not a useful source of information for me in contrast with my dad. So that's where I got to be. I got to accumulate. I need this to grow in my life so that I can be fruitful and helpful and relevant. And see, part of the problem is, so fruit is slow. The positive promise is slow. The negative consequence is also slow. You can disconnect yourself from God in any sort of meaningful or significant ways. You can reject the daily disciplines of meeting with God, practicing the presence of His Word and His Spirit in your life. And for a while, you can look and you can think, I'm doing okay. Nothing awful is happening. I'm actually all right. But the slow and gradual steadiness of decay is just as promised as the slow and steady, slow and steady movement of fruit and growth in your life. And this, this is a huge concern for me and for our pastors. We talked about this at our, at our member weekend last weekend. But right now, the primary things that Americans immerse themselves in are their news feed and entertainment. And so over time, even Christians in America, we are more discipled by our political party than we, am, than we are by Jesus. It's a huge issue. So what we end up with are actually just Republicans and conservatives, uh, or Republicans and conservatives or Democrats and liberals just with a false Jesus sprinkled on top. And both have this phony, fake version of the Christian life and what it looks like to submit ourselves to Jesus. Both delete parts of the Bible that they don't like, that don't suit their preferences. All of it because we've been slowly and gradually shaped over time by all the things that we're opening ourselves up to. Okay, so I've done this long enough to know the pushbacks and questions and concerns that some of you are thinking allow me to helpfully address them. I know that for some of you, um, the instinctive thought right now is, I am already so busy, and it's like you're asking me to make time for something, and I do not comprehend how it could even be possible for me to make space in my life for the things that you're talking about. I'm so busy. And to be honest, I agree with you. You are. I'm not, I don't have any argument. We, we are all very busy doing a lot of things, almost all of them good things. We have the possibility right now, just because of where we're at in history, to do a lot of things that are all really, really good. So you probably are kind of busy. I will say one thing to just check yourself on for some self-awareness. I don't know how these stats are true. It's just that in every survey, it's always the same. Right now, the average American spends four hours a day on their phone. The average American checks their phone 77 times a day. And right now, the average American spends five hours per day watching TV. 
I don't know how the math works. Like, when are you people going to work? I don't get it. I'm just telling you, every single survey says the exact same thing. So I would say do a little bit of self-inspection to make sure that you're not frivolously, you know, tossing time away to things that don't matter, and that's what's making you feel busy. I know that a lot of us have little children who are disinclined to allow us moments of solitude. That's church speak for they never leave us alone. We're talking about this in our teaching team meeting this week. We got pastors and other members of our church that they get together and we talk about the sermon. And um, Aunt Frederick, pastor of our Two Notch Church, uh, we're talking about kids and all that distraction and stuff. And and he said, you know, if you have time to check Instagram while you're around your kids, you actually do have the ability to abide in their presence. And I said, I am offended (laughs) and feel hurt and need you to be quiet right now. He said, in some way, you actually are able to connect yourself to something that you think holds value, and you are able to place your mind on it, even while your kids are with you. And we just, we just ended the meeting. We weren't going to do that anymore. <laughs> so uh, pastor and author Tim Keller has a book on prayer, and uh, in the book, he talks about an illustration that his wife uh, uses. So this is, you know, Tim Keller talking about his wife. So here's what he says that she says about all this. She says, if the doctor told you that you had a fatal condition, and unless you take a medicine every night at 11 p.m., you'll be dead by morning. She says, uh, you would never miss. You would never say, I was too tired to take the medicine. You would never say, I just didn't get to it, or I was watching a movie and I didn't leave time. You would never do that. If there's anything that you know you have got to do, you do it. So when people come to me and ask, how am I going to make time for prayer? How am I going to deal with distractions? I'm sorry, this is a quote, I'm not saying this, she is. You don't believe you need prayer. And that is a theological, spiritual problem, and there's nothing I can do except to tell you you need to get your heart straight and your mind straight on that. The issue, I think, is that we don't actually believe Jesus when he says that apart from him we can do nothing. And so we daily function as if we believe apart from Jesus, I can do okay. I can make it work. I also know that some of you are disliking the sermon because you're feeling some pressure being put on you from Jesus and also from me about orienting yourself around him and his word, making time for his word and prayer in your life. And you're going to leave and you're going to say that I guilted you into spending some time in the Bible and prayer. That's going to be the word that you use. Guilt trip. Can I submit to you that you need more categories than desire and guilt? You got to have more categories than just I want to do it, I'm going to do it, I don't want to do it, but they guilted me into doing it. Bare minimum, add a third category, the category of, I didn't want to do this, but it will bring me eternal lasting joy forever, so thank you for encouraging me to do something I didn't want to do. And to that, I say, you're welcome. (laughs) That is what I'm here to do. You are welcome. All right, write this down. We don't do spiritual disciplines and practices for God, for his benefit. 
We do them with God for our benefit. We don't do spiritual disciplines and practices for God for his benefit. We do them with God for our benefit. And I would add to that, for the world's benefit. Your neighbor needs this just like you do. They need to see your life being changed by Jesus. They need a living, breathing representative of the kingdom of God who lives next door to them. So I know we hate, I know we hate pressure being put on us, and pressure can crush, but pressure can also create diamonds. And the difference is not in the pressure itself, but in what is being pressured. And that was a burn, in case you didn't catch it. So here's where I'm landing. I don't know, I don't know what you need to do to intentionally normalize abiding in Christ so that you grow. I don't know what you need to do, but this is where I feel a lot of freedom. It is not my job to know what you need to do. That is your job. My job is to do the best that I can in all my weakness and all my limits to show you what Jesus said, to highlight these promises, to show you why they'd be beautiful and amazing and needed, and then to call you to it, but I can't do anything more than that. And I know that my words fall short. I can't make you care. Oh, I wish I could. If I could make you care, I would do it all the time. All the time. This would be make me a horrible God. I'd be interfering in your business all the time if I could make you care. I can't. But it's not my responsibility. It's yours. You are responsible for your own spiritual growth, and nobody else is. Now listen, if you don't know what to do, that actually is my job. I'd love to help. So if you're just lost and like, I don't even know what to do, that's an issue of equipping. We want to help you. That is our responsibility. We have leaders and staff in place that want to do that. Please ask if you don't know what to do. But it is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to soak in the presence of God. It is your responsibility to reshape your view of the world around God's truth instead of the world's lies. It is your responsibility to fight your sin and put your sin to death by the power of God's Spirit. It's your responsibility to get on your face before God, pleading with them to move in your life and in your family and in our church and in our city. That, that's yours. I can't, I can't do that for you. I'm here to help if I can. We want to be people who are active agents in making Columbia just a little bit more like heaven each and every day. And Jesus says that it is ours for the taking if we abide. So when we go to the table right now and we take the bread and we take the juice, we are participating in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and we are inviting God to spiritually nourish us, to push in the way that a, the way that a branch gets all of its energy and sustenance pushed in from the vine. We are inviting God through his spirit to push in life into us so that the long-term long gain is fruitfulness and impact and significance. To stir up life in us is what we're after. So let me pray for us and we'll transition. Jesus, thank you uh, for these promises some amazing resources to us. And thank you that you make them available to us by grace, that this is not a merit-based system, that you accept us as we are. You just love us too much to leave us as we are. You know, that you have, for those of us whose faith and trust is in you, you've made us clean, that you love us the way that the Father loves you. 
So God, through the power of your spirit, would you help us to abide, to stay there, to remain, and to allow you to work in our lives that you might become our joy and our meaning and our peace and our hope. God, would you make us powerful, compelling people years from now because of what we start doing today. We ask it for your glory and our good.